Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks from Farnham U3A History Group. Talk 13. In this talk, Alan Freeland tells us about Marconi, his life story, technology, his ladies, his politics, and also his legacy. Please note, the sound quality for parts of this recording is less than ideal because of problems with the amplification equipment. Three things I want to cover in this second half. Very quickly, a whiz through the technology. Secondly, we'll spend most of the time talking about Marconi's ladies. And then right at the end, we'll look about Marconi's politics and his relationship to fascism. The purpose of doing this is just to indicate how much innovation, how much research, how long it took, about 50, 60 years, to get all the various components in place before they had a usable telegraphy system. You know, at this time, all we're talking about basically is sending Morse code. There was no speech, uh, no music going over this, this system. So, 1831, Michael Faraday describes the relationship between electricity and magnetism and light and the propagation of energy through the ether or through space via vibrations. 1837, Samuel Morse patents his electric telegraphy system using the famous Morse code. And he was one of the first to actually demonstrate a commercially viable wired telegraphy system. David Edward Hughes made his fortune with an 1855 patent for a letter printing telegraph receiver, otherwise known as a teleprinter. He also invented a device for amplifying sound that he called a microphone. He chose not to patent this device, and it was soon incorporated into Bell's new telephones. In the early 1860s, James Clerk Maxwell published mathematical equations showing the relationship between magnetism and electricity, and Marconi always acknowledged the theoretical works of Maxwell and Faraday. In 1876, the first telephone patent was awarded to Alexander Graham Bell, and it became the most lucrative and most contested patent in history. It was challenged in some 600 cases. In 1885, Edison filed a patent application for transmitting signals wirelessly using induction. Incidentally, his two eldest children were nicknamed Dot and Dash. Edison became an early American supporter of Marconi and sold his wireless patents to the American Marconi Company in 1903, joining the board at the same time. In 1887, Henrik Hertz published a paper we talked about previously, introducing the concept of radio waves, which became known as Hertzian waves. In 1894, Sir Oliver Lodge demonstrated an early radio wave detector that he named the Coherer, and in 1898, he was awarded a patent for radio tuning. So until 1898, or shortly afterwards, there was no concept of broadcasting on a particular frequency. You just splatted across the whole radio spectrum. In 1895, Marconi's Boulogne neighbor, Augusto Ricci, devised a new type of transmitter that he called a spark oscillator. Okay, so a lot of clever people involved. And there's just one component I want to talk you through, just so you can see how basic this technology was. So this is the coherer, this is the receiver. So we're all used to our smartphones and the uh, silicon world that we live in today. This was the device that actually picked up the radio signals. In 1890, both Oliver Lodge in England and Edward Brainley in France separately invented a new type of receiver. Branley's model consisted of fine copper filings in a glass tube. The copper filings were arranged so they were just touching, 
wafer had very high resistance, so electricity wouldn't flow. When a spark was generated nearby, the force of the spark made the copper filings bond together, reducing their resistance, and electricity flowed. That's how you detected the signal. The tube was then tapped to separate the filings in readiness for detecting the next spark. The device used for tapping the tube was called, simply enough, a tapper. Lodge's term for this new invention was called the coherer, and it caught on, and he was consequently often credited with its development. Marconi always and correctly said he had used a Branley coherer in his early work, and this irritated Lodge, who claimed quite simply that Marconi had done nothing that he himself had not already done. One of the reasons why I'm a fan of Marconi is his polite yet so pointed use of the English language. In 1899, he wrote, In the beginning, I had the whole scientific world against me, saying and doing everything they could to upset me. But I want to state that I feel very grateful to them for this opposition. Particularly do I wish to thank Professor Lodge, who has continually opposed me. The fact that a great man like Professor Lodge should take notice of a young man never heard of before, who was not saying anything, only working, was significant. Their criticism had a great effect on me, in the feeling of future satisfaction which I anticipated when I would have the privilege of showing them that they were wrong. <laughs> Perfect, that. Further innovations and, and visions that came from Marconi and Marconi's companies. So continuous wave communication replaced spark-based technology, and this was necessary to allow broadcast speech and music. It was developed in the United States and was perfected by Marconi's Henry Round, using James Fleming's newly invented thermionic valve. In a speech in 1914, Marconi said, and this is worth noting, so this is 1914, the popular anticipation of pocket wireless telephones by means of which a passenger flying in an aeroplane over France or Italy might ring up a friend walking about the streets of London with a receiver in his pocket cannot be said to have been as yet practically realized but there is nothing inconceivable or even impractical about such an achievement, and the progress of wireless telephony seems to be pointed in that direction. Isn't that amazing? 1914. 1920s, Marconi gets shortwave radio working, and this was directional, dr dramatically reducing the power and cost needed for long-distance communications. Marconi is thus recognized for two transformational radio technologies. The British government had procrastinated for over 20 years in the setting up a wireless communication system throughout its empire. The advancement of technology meant that when it was so decided, in 1924, the new transmitters could be used at one-tenth the cost. Marconi was slow to see the entertainment value of broadcasting, so the Marconi companies didn't drive this innovation. By the 1920s, broadcast radio was becoming popular in America, with radios selling for about £100 in today's money they became as desirable and as fashionable as the Apple products of the 2000s. In the 1920s, test broadcasts were made by the Marconi Company in Britain, with the soprano Dame Nellie Melba making one of the first broadcasts. In May 1922, regular broadcasts were started from Marconi House in London, with the call sign 2LO. In 1922, the BBC was set up by the Postmaster General, Frederick Kellaway, to provide a public broadcast service. The BBC shares were owned equally by six companies, including Marconi's. Within days of Kellaway losing his seat in the 1922 general election, he joined the Marconi board. A new term was developed, Marconiism, for where a public servant uses their public service as a stepping stone to success in the commercial world. We don't do that these days, do we? 
In a lecture to the American Institute of Electrical Engineers, he again showed he was the leading man in radio technology. He demonstrated a small, low-powered, shortwave directional radio system and also showed how this beam could be used to detect objects, for example, ships in fog. In short, he demonstrated radar. In 1924, the Marconi Company moved into a new corporate HQ in the Strand, and it's now an apartment selling for around 750K. And they have the benefit of one of the coolest bars in London called the Radio Rooftop Bar. In 1927, Marconi steps down as company chairman, and in 1927, later that year, he suffers his first of a number of heart attacks. In 1928, with the revenues of the cable companies falling, but still a critical business for Britain, the government forced a merger of the Marconi Company and the cable companies. The holding company was called Cable and Wireless. This effectively marked the end of the company Marconi created, nurtured and led. In 1931, Marconi created the world's first international broadcasting service for his friend the Pope. The Pope didn't trust Marconi's other benefactor, Mussolini, to leave the Vatican free to broadcast unfiltered messages to the faithful. Okay, so Marconi and his ladies. This is a longer section. Marconi's first serious attachment occurred during Marconi's return to England from New York on the luxury steamship St. Paul at the end of 1899. Marconi was 25. Josephine Holman was the same age as Marconi and only joined the ship at the last minute. They met on the third day of the cruise and were soon inseparable. Her family were lawyers, politicians, and publishers, so, so well-to-do. Holman knew all about wireless technology and even knew Morse code, and Marconi reveled in her attention. By the end of the voyage, she was treasurer of Marconi's onboard paper, the Transatlantic Times. For the next two years, they met occasionally and corresponded frequently, but Marconi's priority was always his work. Throughout Marconi's life, he was always happiest and most relaxed when at sea and in the company of women he found attractive. Whilst Marconi aged, the women he found attractive didn't. <laughs> in June 1900, he was again in New York and managed to spend two days with Josephine. On June the 20th, 1900, Marconi wrote just as the ship sailed back to England. As the ship speeds away, leaving behind it in the mist the great American continent, a feeling of sadness such as I've never experienced comes over me. Then at the end, he added, in Morse code, my dearest Joe, I feel I cannot write much. I feel so sad and yet so happy. I now have something to work for which I value far more than riches, honor, and glory. Only a few of Josephine's letters still exist. She spoke her mind and her heart, knew what she wanted and how to express it. She was supportive and at the same time frustrated. In one letter she wrote, Oh, how much you are doing for the world, and I am doing nothing. They met again in March 1901 when he was back in New York, and their relationship deepened. In one letter he writes, you are in every way my ideal, the girl angel I dreamed of, for which I never thought I would meet. Yours for always, and only yours, Guglielmo. He celebrated his 27th birthday during the crossing back to England. Josephine had thoughtfully sent him a gift of an umbrella. He had forgotten her birthday a few weeks earlier. When he was back in London, and after speaking with Annie, he cabled Josephine, mother sends her love, you may announce our engagement. Marconi's decision to cite his American radio station in Newfoundland had enormous consequences for a relationship with Josephine. Newfoundland was more than a thousand miles from New York, and Josephine's mother was becoming increasingly anxious about the length of her daughter's engagement. Having succeeded in communicating across the Atlantic in early 1902, he left Ottawa for New York to visit Josephine, whom he'd pretty much ignored for two years. 
Marconi was fated on his arrival in New York, but Josephine didn't join him. They met briefly, and almost immediately afterwards, Josephine left Europe, and the family issued a statement saying Josephine had requested she be released from their engagement. Marconi reluctantly agreed and seemed depressed by this turn of events. Neither Marconi nor Josephine ever publicly discussed the reason. On arriving in Cherbourg, Josephine met a Mr. Boris of Budapest, whom she subsequently married. Subsequent to this, there were no shortage of mothers seeking to present their daughters to Marconi, but to no avail. It was only on board the transatlantic ocean liners that Marconi had the time to relax. In October 1903, on board the ship Oceana to America, he met and fell in love with Innes Milholland, the 17-year-old daughter of a newly prosperous Irish-American family living in New York. According to her biographer, Linda Lumsden, Innes undoubtedly inherited her parents' passion. She enjoyed sex and the power of the role of a seductress. As soon as she hit adolescence, men began buzzing round her like bees round honeysuckle. One of the earliest of these was Marconi. Inez became a high-profile first-wave feminist, one of the most visible stars of the American women's movement in the 1930s. A 1913 image of her on a white horse was one of the movement's iconic symbols. She was a suffragist, a militant campaigner of women's rights, and one of the most sexually radical of the new women. They were engaged for a year before the relationship came to an end. Marconi and Innes remained friends. In 1916, Innes collapsed on stage while making an impassioned plea for women's suffrage. She never recovered and died a month later. The next time Marconi was in New York, he visited the family and was moved to tears when shown a plaster cast of her hand, which he kissed. Beatrice O'Brien. In summer 1904, a Dutch family, the Van Routes, had brought Brown Sea Island, and Marconi used to visit for relaxation. In July, they had a house guest called Beatrice from one of the longest established Irish noble families. She was 21 and Marconi 30, and they quickly formed a friendship. A few days later, Beatrice's mother, Lady Inchiquin, was holding a charity ball at the Albert Hall. And at the top of the long lobby staircase, Marconi proposed to Beatrice. Beatrice took a number of days to make up her mind, which was no. Marconi stayed in contact with O'Brien's whilst his busy work schedule prevented further meetings. Whilst in America, the press tried linking him romantically with a number of ladies, including with Alice Roosevelt, the president's daughter. Marconi had met Alice many times, and she appeared deeply interested in wireless. It's amazing how many of these young women seem to be deeply interested in wireless. In December, Beatrice was again on Brownsea Island, and against her wishes, the Van Routes also invited Marconi. A little later, when Marconi proposed again, she accepted, subject to family approval. Lady Inchquin was not impressed on account of Marconi's foreignness, and Beatrice was told to break off the engagement. Just like Marconi's mother, Annie Jameson, Beatrice went against her mother's wishes and didn't break off the engagement. Marconi, meanwhile, was in Rome, wild boar hunting with the king, and the Italian papers were reporting he was engaged to an Italian princess after they were seen sharing a box at the opera. Marconi this time rushed back to London to reassure Beatrice of this falsehood and used his charm on Lady Inchgrin to win her over. He gave Beatrice two wedding gifts, a diamond tiara and a bicycle. Beatrice was totally unlike any of Marconi's previous love interests, yet he was ambivalent about Beatrice as he had been about Josephine. His ghost-written autobiography of 1919 devotes less than one full sentence to her. And as in this letter to his mother, what reference there is is bracketed with other details. 
A fortnight after this lecture, on March the 16th, 1905, I was married at St. George's Church, Hanover Square, to the Honourable Beatrice O'Brien, a daughter of Lady Lynchquin. And by the end of the month, I was again on my way to New York, this time accompanied by my wife. The Marconis left Liverpool on the Cunard Liner Campania, and it wasn't long before Beatrice had a sense that her new husband had eccentric qualities. He hung clocks all around the cabin and had a habit of throwing his worn shirts and socks out the porthole windows to avoid bothering with the laundry. <laughs> he was also obsessively jealous, inquiring in detail about anyone and everyone she had contact with on deck. Beatrice, who didn't have a jealous bone in her body, felt it was absolutely incomprehensible lack of trust. Marconi's priorities also became clear to Beatrice on their honeymoon in America, when Marconi engrossed himself in experimental work at the remote radio station being built on the eastern tip of Nova Scotia. Beatrice was left to entertain herself. In many respects, Marconi and Beatrice were opposites. To paraphrase Degna, their daughter, Beatrice was innocent, extravagant, and impractical, while Marconi was worldly, organized, and meticulous. But she also fussed over him, as only his mother had done before. When he was away working, she would write to his associates, as on one occasion when she wrote to George Kemp at the Haven, will you take great care of him and let me know by why if he isn't quite so well? Don't ask him, just let me know. Promise, as really I'm rather worried about him. Beatrice would be Marconi's confidant for the next 25 years. When he was away, he wrote to her constantly. When he was under stress, he sought her counsel. The various Marconi archives contain nearly 200 letters from Marconi to Beatrice. They tell only one side of the story, however, as nearly all of Beatrice's letters have disappeared. The Marconis were soon fixtures of the London Society pages, entertaining guests such as the King of Portugal for lunch, lawn, tennis. At first, Marconi tried to keep up with the society life, but he soon tired of it and withdrew. This meant that I rarely saw him, Beatrice remembered, as I returned late from dances and he left early for the office. This divided us. He became nervous, irritable, and irrationally jealous. He was also still frequently away, spending more time in Italy or at one or other of his radio stations in England, Ireland, or Canada. In fact, Marconi was not with Beatrice on many important occasions. When their firstborn child died at four weeks old, on the birth of their daughter Degna in 1908, on the birth of their son Guilio in 1910, on the birth of their fourth child in 1916, and in June 1920, when his mother Annie died, he also didn't make the funeral. Degna writes about the period from around 1912. When they saw Marconi at all, he was tired, intensely irritable, and increasingly alienated from Beatrice, in a world miserable. She described her parents' relationship at this time as stormy and riven with jealousies, especially on Marconi's side. Yet he was the one that carried on a series of apparently joyless and barely camouflaged affairs. Beatrice seemed more upset by the indiscretion than the infidelity. Yet despite his philandering, Marconi's letters to Beatrice are also loving, and Beatrice's 1950s memoir portrays the nuances in the relationship. In 1912, on board the Luciana, he wrote to Beatrice he was feeling fit and rested, and joked that there was practically no flirtable girls on board. In 1916 in London, he falls for a 26-year-old Irish opera singer, Margaret Boot Sheridan. There's no evidence they were physically intimate, but Marconi sponsored her career and used his connections to introduce her to Puccini, who became her main benefactor. She played two of Puccini's heroines. He stayed in touch with Margaret for the rest of his life and was frequently a theater companion. 
1918, 44-year-old Marconi falls in love with 26-year-old Francesca Bettini, the highest paid movie star in the world, and proposes to her. She is known as the actress that said no to Marconi. This is a more serious affair than the previous flirtations and was carried out in public. It resulted in the breakdown of Marconi and Beatrice's marriage. Often Paola and her husband, and Beatrice and Marconi, would all be on the yacht together. Beatrice understandably could not take this, and they separated. This was a legal separation, and Marconi agreed to a financial settlement. Beatrice requested a divorce in order to start a relationship. Civil divorce was not allowed in Italy, but was permitted in the city of Fiume, which was about to become incorporated into Italy. So a divorce here would be recognized in Italy. Marconi is very adept at finding ways around to achieve what he needs to achieve. So this gets a bit complicated here. The Treaty of Rome was signed on 27th of January, 1924. On the 29th of January, Marconi arrives in Fiume, takes up temporary citizenship, divorces Beatrice, and then returns to London. The divorce decree was issued on the 12th of February, and the Treaty of Rome was ratified on February the 22nd, annexing Fiume to Italy. Beatrice married three weeks later, and Marconi and Beatrice corresponded regularly afterwards with a somewhat improved relationship. Marconi was 50 and a bachelor. He often sought Beatrice's advice about his current new girlfriend. The next serious girlfriend was 25-year-old Maria Cristiana Betsy Scarli, a quiet and serious girl. Marconi desperately wanted to marry her, but the fact he was divorced was a no-no for the conservative and Catholic Desi Scarli family. They didn't even recognize civil marriage. Everything with Marconi is complex, but possible. It all depends on who you know. And we don't have time to go into the details. It took Marconi two years, but Marconi got the Pope to decree that his marriage to Beatrice hadn't taken place. Uh, and therefore, he wasn't divorced. And therefore, he could marry. In 1927, Marconi and Cristiano were married in Rome in the Basilica of St. Mary and the Angels of, and the Martyr. They had one child together, a daughter, Electra. Cristina died in 1994, and Marconi spent the last 10 years of his life with her. As was standard for the White Star Lines contract with the Marconi Company, the Titanic was fitted with a Marconi wireless station and two Marconi wireless operators, twin masts for the aerials, when the Titanic hit the iceberg, the radio operator Jack Phillips sent out distress signals, which were picked up by the Marconi station in Newfoundland and also by the Titanic sister ship, the Olympic. The Olympic was 500 miles away, too far to help. The nearest ship was the Californian, but its sole operator had just retired for the night, so never received the SOS message. The Carpathia, another ship, was only four hours sailing away, and its Marconi operator, Harold Cottram, was also about to retire for the night, but fortunately he did pick up the message and the Carpathia rushed to the scene and was able to rescue 750 passengers and the crew, and crew but more than 1,500 people died. There are many issues and outcomes to this story. For example, the Carpathia's radio was strong enough to receive messages but not to transmit, to transmit them far enough so the rescue could have been called. So had it been the Carpathia that hit the iceberg, no ship would have come to the rescue. There was also controversy about whether Harold Cotton should have been allowed to sell his story to newspapers. And the American Marconi Company was also in the process of being floated, and that Titanic incident, together with the award of the long-negotiated GPO contract, resulted in a massive share price increase, and a scandal broke involving British politicians who profited from potential insider dealing. 
This was the first case of dubious financial dealings by government members to get a full airing in the British Parliament, and it created a new baseline in ethical standards for politicians. Both the US Senate and the British government instituted inquiries into the sinking, at which Marconi testified, and subsequent international agreements mandated large ships to carry wireless installations which were continuously manned, and for broadcast stations to have a unique call sign so they could be identified. Marconi trusted and supported governments. He always sought to work with government wherever he could. And this may have made him less critical of government than someone as influential as Marconi should have been. So I'm going to give you two examples. As Marconi's fame and influence grew, he willingly embraced his usefulness to the power structure of European colonialism. He knew Rudyard Kipling, and whether he knew or not Kipling's poem, the white man's burden, and Kipling's popularization of the idea that colonialism had a civilizing mission, it certainly accorded with Marconi's own political philosophy. By 1900, many of the atrocities being conducted under the personal fiefdom of King Leopold of Belgium in the Belgian Congo were well known, especially in Britain due to the reporting of Edward Morell, amongst others. By the time Marconi emerged as a public figure, the situation in the Congo was known to readers of the Times, and Marconi was certainly a reader of the Times. A mere fortnight before Marconi's Brussels visit, the Times reported a pogrom-like wave of terror by tribal mercenaries on the native villages, sanctioned by Leopold's Congolese officials. Marconi seemed to be inattentive to such news. In March 1900, he responded with innocent and childlike excitement when King Leopold invited him to Brussels, to explore the possibility of adopting his system both for commercial purposes in Belgium and also by his army in the Belgian Congo. Marconi demonstrated his system to the Belgian king and their letters sent home from Brussels show him in awe of the king. Remarkably, Leopold continued to enjoy popular favour at this time. He may well have convinced Marconi that he needed his system in order to instill some European order in his unruly colony. Or the question may not have come up. Marconi's view of his own role was one of service to the imperialist power structure. The astonishing thing is that even in private communication, he could be so unaware of human rights. After the Brussels demonstration, Leopold immediately and publicly promised to adopt Marconi's system for his army, and Brussels became Marconi's company's continental base. So the second example is from Hawaii. The UK Marconi company won a contract to connect the Hawaiian Islands. The business model what Marconi implemented is that you charge a royalty of £100 per annum for every 10 miles covered. Normally, the Marconi company provided trained operators, but on this occasion, experts were provided to train local people. Although the equipment was working well, the operators provided by the franchise company were not up to the task, either through lack of English, uh, lack of motivation, or low wages, and they were not up to the task, and the Hawaiian operation failed to take off. This confirmed to Marconi that it was better to lease the equipment and provide trained operators than rely on local staff. However, even by the racist attitudes of the time, Marconi's account of the failure at the 1902 shareholders' meeting was shocking. He said, The failure was due to the inferior class of the operators, frequently ignorant half-breeds and Negroes, whom the wire company was ill-advised enough to employ for reasons of very false economy. Whilst Marconi saw radio communications as a civilizing force for the world, it looks like his view of the civilized world was limited to white people. Marconi met Gabriele D'Annunzio in Rome in 1915. They were both internationally known Italians. 
Gabrielle as a playwright, poet, author, showman, leader of Italy's modernist culture, a soldier and a keen advocate for the unification of all Italian-speaking peoples. Despite their very different careers, they became close friends. Part of the resolution of the Adriatic question after World War I, Britain and France proposed the city of Fiume, now Rijeka, uh, in Croatia, should belong to what would become Yugoslavia. Nuncio was incensed by this and led an army of Italians to take over the city for Italy. When Italy declined to take sovereignty, Denuncio declared Fiume as an independent state, which it effectively became for a year, with Denuncio as its leader. The Italian government asked Marconi to go to Fiume and try and talk some sense into Gabriel. However, such as was his charisma, that in the 48 hours Marconi was in Fiume, he became an even firmer friend and supporter. And the reason why this is so important is that Denuncio's leadership of Fiume became a role model for Mussolini's fascism. What Marconi saw in both Denuncio and Mussolini were people prepared to make Italy great again, and fascism the way to achieve it. When Mussolini came to power, Marconi became both beacon of Italian, and hence fascist greatness, and a go-between for relations with Britain. In 1927, Marconi was appointed president of the British Nationalist Fascist Party, and it's worth noting that in the early days of fascism, no one knew what lengths fascists would go to stay in power and control the country. In a strange linguistic quirk, the new shortwave radio system that Marconi brought to market in the 1920s was called beam radio due to its directional nature. And the Italian for beam is fascio. Marconi agreed to be president of the Italian Royal Academy, expecting funding to enable him to replicate his success with scientists in other disciplines but Mussolini needed a figurehead and international respectability, not expensive scientific research. All university professors had to sign a loyalty oath to the fascist party. All but 12 of the 1,200 professors signed, and the 12 that did not lost their jobs. Careers depended on loyalty and support of the party. Another area of discrimination by the fascist regime was against Jews. In 1932, Marconi put forward recommendations to Mussolini for membership of the Academy. The list included top Jewish scientists, but Mussolini vetoed their inclusion, and there's no record of Marconi challenging his decisions. Marconi's health continued to deteriorate. He suffered a heart attack in 1927, and was out of circulation for three months. In 1933 in America, he met with President Roosevelt, who saw Mussolini as a much stronger counterweight to Hitler and was very much in tune with the fascist philosophy of the time, as were many Americans, as evidenced by the large crowds who gave fascist salutes wherever Marconi went. In 1935, on board a train from Paris to Rome, Marconi had another heart attack, and his life was only saved by the presence of a doctor. In his final years, he continued to support Mussolini, but he was increasingly concerned about impending war, and in one of the last meetings he held with British Labour MP George Lansbury in early July 1937 in Rome, uh, Lansbury later wrote to the meeting, Marconi was a fascist because he had accepted that that form of government was the best for Italy. All the same, he had a deep abiding affection for Great Britain and was emphatic in his declaration made again and again that war in these days is a potential abundance for all was a terrible blunder. Remembering Marconi's sad demeanor, Lansbury wrote, I think he felt himself a doomed man. He seemed to be unable to bear the thought of war between Italy and England. 
At age 63, he was living with Christina and her parents in a cloistered environment. His heart attacks were becoming more frequent, and he died in bed with his doctor in attendance on July the 20th, 1937. The state funeral took place at the church where Marconi and Christina had married. At precisely 6 p.m. Rome time, telegraph and radio stations in Italy, Britain, and the United States and Canada went silent, along with 31 beam and wireless stations of the cable and wireless network around the world and others in China, Japan, and Europe. In his lifetime, Marconi foresaw the development of television and the fax machine, GPS and radar, the portable handheld telephone. Two months before he died, newspapers were reporting that he was working on a death ray and that he had killed a rat with an intricate device at a distance of three feet. It seems to have been something like a taser. I dropped the experiment after that, Marconi said. If you have to crawl up to within three feet of something to kill it with elaborate, costly, and ungainly apparatus needing the most sensitive adjustment, it's cheaper to use a gun. <laughs> this anecdote was typical of Marconi. Thank you. The views expressed by the speaker are not necessarily the same as those held by the team at the Mr. T Podcast Studio. This podcast is produced by the Mr. T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A Group.